Hello, my name is Dr. Paul Wheatley-Price, a medical oncologist and president of Lung Cancer Canada. Welcome to our podcast series called Lung Cancer Voices. In this series of podcasts, I'm interviewing patients, caregivers, healthcare professionals, some of the leading lung cancer researchers in the country, indeed in the world, to highlight important and relevant issues facing those affected by lung cancer. Welcome to this series of Lung Cancer Voices podcast, which I'm uh, quite excited about. I'm uh, meeting with my colleague here in Ottawa, Dr. Garth Nicholas, who is a medical oncologist and on faculty at the University of Ottawa. And he did a really special thing on social media uh, in November 2021 for Lung Cancer Awareness Month. And so we're going to talk about that in a series of podcasts that we're going to call... uh, important lung cancer trials through history and how to interpret them. So, Garth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Could maybe you could maybe tell us, you, you're at Garth Nicholas on Twitter. Um, at Garth Nicholas 1. At Garth Nicholas at Garth 1. Nicholas, at Garth Nicholas was taken, yes. Um, when did you get into social media and using Twitter? So I think I've been on Twitter for about seven years now. Why did you, uh, what, what do you use it for? Is it specifically for work or, or fun? Or? So I use it mainly, yeah, for communication around cancer or follow people who are leaders in, in uh, the cancers that I treat. I use it for some fun as well, but, but really I do, I do use it uh, largely to keep up uh, professionally with new information. And I, I think increasingly more of us are doing that, aren't we? When something important comes out, we may have historically learned about it at a, uh, at an academic meeting or reading a research paper, but now it's it's quite accessible through these f- yeah. formats. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think especially maybe with the pandemic and people not traveling as much and meeting as much, uh, the opportunity to uh, discuss uh, new developments, new research with colleagues is, uh, you know, is always welcome and, and particularly so over the last uh, 20 months or so. So you took on this kind of monumental task in Lung Cancer Awareness Month. Maybe you could give an overview of what, what you set out to do, uh, and then um, and then we'll get into the details. Sure, yeah. It was a little bit uh, bigger, as it turned out, than I than I thought it would be at the start. And maybe, uh, maybe most projects are like that. If you know how big they were going to be, you wouldn't have started them in the first place. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I set out to do was over 30 days in the uh, month of November, which is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, I set out to describe a clinical trial, which is you know the kind of uh, research that we do to advance uh, lung cancer care. Uh, so to describe one clinical trial per day, uh, both to describe its results and to describe something of the the methodology or the way the trial was conducted or analyzed to help people, you know, understand and appreciate how clinical trials work, and uh, maybe help them to uh, to uh, bring that knowledge when they when they see new research in the future. Okay, and, and specifically, you you were talking about lung cancer trials, yes. but some of the methodological questions or, or comments you made presumably are more broadly applicable. Yeah, I think so. Right, they are they are they are applicable to uh, clinical trials, not just of lung cancer, indeed, not just of cancer. Right, I mean, clinical trials are how we advance uh, knowledge uh, throughout medicine, and I think I think again in this last uh, couple of years. 
the combination of the pandemic and the availability of new research on social media has meant that a lot of people are encountering primary research or encountering research without the filter of, of experts between them and it and uh, trying to make sense of it, trying to interpret it. So I, I thought it was uh, perhaps timely in that way as well. And you've got a lot of uh, followers on on Twitter. So again, at Garth Nicholas one, uh, digit one, I followed it and it was interesting to see some of the uh, some of the other sort of international big hitter lung cancer researchers that were following you and commenting on on some of your posts, which must have been quite flattering. Yeah, that was a, that was certainly a, a rewarding part of it. I, I had intended the, uh, or at least when I conceived of it, I, I really thought that this would be uh, for an audience of lay people, people who were not uh, medical experts or, or uh, you know, not necessarily well versed in, in reading uh, uh, medical research. But for sure, it captured the attention of, of some of the uh, lung cancer Twitterati. So that was uh, that was nice. I got a lot of nice feedback from uh, from fellows and residents as well, who, uh, you know, who uh, I think used the, the trials I went through as, as something of a reading list and something to direct them to uh, to the, the, the foundational kind of research in lung cancer. So it was uh, it was, uh, yeah, rewarding in, in that way. So if people want to, to look at that, you'll, you'll have to go onto Twitter. And then I think October 31st, you gave us a Halloween introduction yep. of what you were going to do. And then, and then every day through November, you, you, you posted uh, or you tweeted about studies and you did them in a, in a thread. So there would be anywhere from 10 to 15 or so yep. tweets per day just going through that, that study. Can I ask you, like, how long did it take you each, each night to prepare a prepare your uh yeah it was uh like i say it was it it was uh i I was surprised in a way i mean i expected it to to take some time to write i i don't know how long it took me to write each one probably well probably close to an hour or or more you had to find the pictures as well and, and paste them in you had to uh and and you know twitter imposes these restrictions on the length of of each kind of thought that you can express which is which is i think a limitation that uh that if you use it the right way, it promotes you to sort of think carefully and concisely about the each of the points that you wish to make. So yeah. So did that did that give you that that requirement to sort of distill your thoughts to the the uh, Twitter limit? Did that did you find that helpful yourself? To did it make you or give you more clarity or understanding of the studies as you sort of look back on and some of them were you know thirty Perhaps. years old. I mean, I think the format, you know, the the. F- the the format to some extent determines the way that you think about the product and i would yeah i would say that there were definitely some that i struggled with to say like what is the real essence here that i can boil down to the 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 size of the uh, of the tweet limit yeah. yeah now well before we get into talking about some of the studies and some of the important things in lung cancer that you you um, selected a lot of the tweets had artwork in what, what yeah. kind of all Canadian art so was it was it? all Canadian art so at the end of each uh, at the end of each at the end of the first Twitter thread rather I had uh, you know I had just seen uh, I, I follow on Twitter this uh, account called Canadian paintings and uh, 
there had just been one that was called November, and I thought, oh, you know, it's November first tomorrow. What a lovely thing! I'll just slap it at the end of the, uh, at the end of the thread, and that was completely unplanned, but got some good feedback on it the first day, and uh, each day just really stole a painting from the Canadian Paintings Twitter feed and uh, <laughs> and put it on there. It's a it's a great uh, it's a great feed if you like uh, if you like uh, especially landscapes. You should uh, you should follow that. Okay, that was great. It, it made. Uh... Uh, well, it just enhanced the en the en enjoyment of uh, going through those tweets. Okay, so what we're going to do in the next, we're going to break this up into two or three podcasts. So uh, come back to listen to more, and you can go, of course, to to look at the original tweets themselves. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask Dr. Nicholas. Uh, uh, we're going to go through in sort of chunks of lung cancer, and what we're hoping to do is to highlight for people listening to this some of the most important lung cancer studies that have taken us to from really quite a dismal disease not that long ago to one with a myriad of options and, and hope and improvements and you know what you achieved in, in, in highlighting this is, is, is like you said it's kind of a reading list to, to learn about lung cancer so I think maybe what we can do is we'll we'll go through uh, we could go through chronologically by day, but I think it maybe might make more sense to go through sort of chronologically by a sort of a lung cancer journey, maybe. Sure. Yeah. So, um, just to f to to complete sort of episode one, if you like, of the, of this podcast series, maybe we could go to a couple of uh, days that you had in the middle of the month, November twentieth and twenty first, where we, you talked about lung cancer screening. So, so the whole idea of lung cancer screening is well, is what. So screening, I guess by definition, is uh, performing a test on somebody who is at risk of a disease but has no particular symptoms or, or, or worrisome findings in order to try and detect that disease at an early stage, okay? Um, the, the assumption being that cancers detected at an early stage uh, might be more amenable to treatment and have better outcomes than cancers detected later. Uh, so in the specific example of lung cancer screening, uh, what has been studied and what there are large uh, trials of is CT scan screening. Okay, so the screening intervention is a CT scan of the lungs, you know, performed at different intervals in a couple of different studies with the hope of identifying lung cancer early. The population of people who have been studied have generally been people with substantial smoking histories. These are people who we who we know to be at highest risk of lung cancer. And yeah, there was a, a two days in a row there where we looked at two large uh, randomized studies. Uh, one, the the National Lung Screening Study or National Lung Screening Trial, pardon me, NLST, conducted in the United States, and the other, uh, a trial called Nelson, which is a, a Dutch Belgian study. So that those were the uh, those are the studies on those two days. Yeah. So that was November twentieth and twenty first for those who want to go back to the to the uh, to the Twitter feed. So screening is now available in uh, the U.S. It's mm -hmm. available in the U.K. It's coming in various European countries. In Canada, we have a screening program which is which exists and is running in mm -hmm. Ontario at least in in some areas. Uh, British Columbia is opening a screening program this year, 2022. Other provinces are have pilot programs or are looking to open programs. So, uh, presumably, that comes from these two studies that you that you talked about. What what's the big sure? What's the big headline? So, I think the the take home from these studies is that there is a uh, there is a 
benefit in lung cancer screening, specifically in that it reduces the risk of death from lung cancer. So in the NLS tree trial, where half of people got CT scans and half of people did not, there were 20% fewer lung cancer deaths in the group that had, uh, that had lung cancer screening. Uh, so that sounds like a big percentage drop. You know, in terms of absolute numbers, it's maybe a little bit uh, a little bit less impressive. The vast majority of people in both arms did not get lung cancer, uh, and therefore the screening could not have uh, could not have prevented uh, could not have prevented deaths in those people who weren't going to get lung cancer anyways. You know, the the absolute number of 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 death of reductions of lung cancer deaths was about a hundred in a trial of of fifty thousand people. So. I would say that probably the take-home is that there is a real benefit to lung cancer screening in the populations that it was studied, but that benefit is is small. It is not an enormous or overwhelming benefit. And so I think the, the controversies that we face in lung cancer screening right now are not so much the question of, you know, what should we do? You know, should we do lung cancer screening? I think we should, right? There's this trial that shows a, a survival ad advantage. Uh, and so it is something that we should be doing. And I think it's uncontroversial to say that you should do that for people who were who met the um, eligibility criteria of the trial. The trial studied people who were between 55 and 75 years old, uh, people who had uh, smoked uh, for at least 30 years, uh, and uh, if they had quit, had quit less than 15 years ago. So people with a substantial and, and somewhat recent smoking history. The controversies we have are whether we can extend the recommendations for lung cancer screening into other populations, okay, into populations of people who are uh, maybe have less of a smoking history, people who have uh, maybe risks for lung cancer on the basis of other things like uh, like uh, family history or, or or other exposures, and I think those are those are still uh, active and and uh, controversial areas of research. So, in in your tweet thread for the NLST and the Nelson, the, yeah. the, the European study, you, you raised concern about um, what you called overdiagnosis. Yeah. And, at, and at one point you distinguished the difference between overdiagnosis and a false positive. Sure. And we're all familiar with false positives right now with COVID testing, sure. of course. With, um, could, you, could you maybe just explain what's the difference between a false positive and, and overdiagnosis and how that plays into sure. lung cancer screening? So, sure. So an example of a false positive, like you say, we're familiar with it in, in with, uh, with uh, COVID testing now. So the idea that you've gone and have a COVID test and it has returned a positive result says you have COVID when in fact you do not, right? There is, a, there is <clears throat> the possibility for any test to return a false positive result. So a false positive is a test that says you have, uh, says a person has a disease when in fact they do not. Overdiagnosis, as it pertains to screening, is something a little bit different, and it's uh, it's uh, it's it's maybe a little bit harder to get your head around. Overdiagnosed cancers are real cancers. So if a person on a so uh, sorry, they are real cancers, but they are cancers that if they were not diagnosed, if they had never been detected, if they had never been turned up would not have bothered that person over the course of their life. So it is a it is a diagnosis of of a of a cancer that would not have bothered that person in the absence of of, of that diagnosis, okay? I think you made a comment in one of the tweets that it's a sort of disquieting yeah, notion it, that we may all have cancer within us. 
Sure. I, I think it's I think this is something that comes up in the screening literature is that I mean, by definition of screening, you are you are taking people who are not sick and doing tests on them and you will find things. And we know that, you know, for instance, from autopsy series of people who have died of other things, that uh, it's not rare to find early stage breast cancers, early stage prostate cancers, early, you know, cancers in various organs that people were not diagnosed with in their lives. And, and then they, they've, they've eventually died of something else, you know. If those cancers had been diagnosed in their lives, they would have been treated, they would have had surgery or chemo or radiation, what have you, and ultimately would would not have have improved or lengthened their life because they were they were fated to die of something else. We can know statistically that these overdiagnosed cancers exist. We know that among screen detected cancers, some of them are overdiagnosed. But we cannot know that for any individual person, which makes it a bit of a slippery uh, concept, you know, for any individual person who has a cancer detected on a screening study. Uh, I mean, of course, it's a cause for grave concern and 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 uh, and they go through treatments and and uh, and have that cancer addressed. And it's, you know, it's easy and encouraging to think, oh, that screening study may have saved my life. Uh, it's a little more disconcerting to think, oh, man, if I had never looked, maybe that never would have bothered me in the first place, you know. And this is a this is a real concern for screening programs if the rate of, of overdiagnosed cancers is is equal or greater to the the rate of cancers that would have actually become clinically relevant patients may patients in a screening program may be exposed to net harm because they end up with lots of interventions for things that would not have caused trouble in the first place okay. so we're going to wrap up this episode in, in a second but just maybe just to finish off on the screening question then so in lung cancer screening, what's your sense from from the the studies that you 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 tweeted on? Is there a lot of uh, is there a high false positive rate to start with, and and is overdiagnosis something that you particularly worry about with lung cancer? You you mentioned prostate yeah. cancer and breast cancer in autopsies. So the false positive rate in lung cancer screening is. I guess it depends what you call a false positive. Many people have an initial screening scan that demonstrates a pulmonary nodule that uh, necessitates further workup, either repeat scans or a biopsy or something, and turns out not to be cancer. Um, if you consider that a false positive in the sense that the initial test demonstrated something, then yeah, the false positive rate is actually pretty high. But usually those positives are resolved without you know, surgery or great interventions or anything. Um, the overdiagnosis rate, I think the the estimate uh, in the NLST is that roughly 13% of lung cancers discovered in that study were overdiagnosed. For technical reasons we maybe don't need to get into, that rate probably declines over time. But uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's not an insignificant number. Again, I feel comfortable with the idea of CT lung cancer screening for the population included in the study. I would feel, uh, I don't feel great confidence extrapolating it to people at lower risk for lung cancer, for instance. I, I think, I, I get the sense CT screening by its, in and of itself as a standalone intervention has maybe gone as far as it will go. And what is on the horizon for screening will be some kind of preliminary study before we get to the CT scan. There's going to be a breath test or a blood test for circulating tumor DNA or something like that that will more accurately screen people in and out for high risk. And, and then the higher risk ones go on to have CT scans. Okay. And so what people can do is go back to previous Lung Cancer Voices podcasts. And we've had one with uh, Stephen Lamb, who's a um, big Canadian leader in lung cancer screening. Uh, his colleague in Vancouver, Dr. Ronell Myers, who 
who, who discusses a study of actually breath tests for screening. And then more recently, Erica Nicholson from the Canadian Partnership Against Cancer, who have really pushed uh, for lung cancer screening to be implemented. Well, Garth, thank you very much. Um, we'll uh, take a pause on this pod, but come back uh, for the next episode where we'll talk about um, some treatments now rather than screening of early stage lung cancers and advanced lung cancers and learning how to read clinical trials. Sounds good. Thanks to our producer, Ryan Mullen. Please send us your feedback, like and follow us on Facebook at LungCan, on Twitter at LungCancer underscore Can, and on Instagram at LungCancerCanada. For more information about lung cancer or to donate, volunteer or share your story, visit our webpage at lungcancercanada.ca.